Well, I need to start by admitting that I have a confession to make this morning. Um, it seems that I failed to mention to the elders back in September when they extended the gracious invitation to Lucy and I to come and be the interim pastor here at the church that I have no intention whatsoever of attending uh, the National Hot Rod Association races up at Brainerd International Raceway this summer. I'm sorry, but I just am not into drag racing. For that matter, I'm really not all that impressed with uh, individuals who in cars going over 200 miles an hour continually make left-hand turns for over 500 miles. You know, that's officially called NASCAR. And nor am I really, in, uh, do I enjoy uh, monster truck rallies either. Um, so I'm sorry, uh, please forgive me. But I do enjoy a form of racing, uh, a cross-country race called the Baja 1000. It actually starts on Tuesday and will run through Sunday. Um, and what I find fascinating about the Baja 500, I mean 1000, is that it's man and machine against a thousand miles of, of rugged desert terrain. And the race, as the vehicles go across the desert, creates such clouds of dust. The vehicles have to have special breathing equipment for the engine and for the driver and for his navigator. Now, the, the race leader, he's up front and he enjoys a clear view and clean air. But everybody else behind him, as the cameras show, they just disappear in the, in the billowing dust that's created by all these vehicles. And that's where we get the cliche, eat my dust. So the leader that's out front of the race in the Baja 1000, he's creating it, and everybody behind him is eating it. But in race conditions like the Baja, it's really easy to find where the leader is. Just find the billowing dust cloud, and he's at the leading edge. Now, what's true in off-road racing is also true in life. For there are men and women of high caliber, um, leaders who are worthy for us to emulate and to be our heroes, but the majority of them do not have a celebrity status in the eyes of the world, but we can see them by the cloud of dust they're creating. Uh, they're quietly on the move, um, not content to hang with the cloud. What's fascinating is they are very open and willing to have us come up and join them where they are, but if we're going to join them up there, it's going to cause us to pull something deep from within side of us. Otherwise, will eat their dust. Such a man is Boaz. Give your Bibles, turn if you would, or on your device, turn to Ruth chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses and then leave the last part of the chapter for, for next Sunday. But Boaz is worth emulating and watching carefully because something powerful is revealed through his life in what he does as he gets into the driver's seat here in chapter 4. Now, if you're there at Ruth 4, look at the very first word uh, in verse 1, and it's the word now, or some of your translations will say meanwhile, which alerts us to the fact that this chapter is simply an extension of all that's been happening in chapter 3. 
Yet, what's happening in chapter 4 is that all the other characters so far that we've seen in the book, the main characters, they've all kind of stepped aside, and Boaz now is in the spotlight. And everything that occurs here in these 12 verses occurs at his initiative. So on this particular morning, he begins by setting the stage. Boaz, as we're told, leaves the threshing floor and immediately goes to the gate of the city. Why? Well, this is where all business and judicial matters were handled uh, at, at this day or during this day. For the gate of the city was the lawyer's office, it was the boardroom, it was the title company, it was the courtroom, all rolled up into one. So nothing was done in private, behind the scenes. Everything was done out in public so anybody and everybody could see and be a witness to it. So in the opening verses of this chapter, I want you to notice that we have the repeated use of the word sit. Boaz is gathering together all the necessary participants. Well, on this morning, it's it's morning rush hour. And so the other possible kinsman redeemer is going to come out through the city gate at some time, and Boaz waits for him, and when he sees him, he asks him to come and sit. Then he asks ten elders of the city to also come and sit. There are to be witnesses to the transaction that's going to occur here in a few moments. Again, don't miss the initiative that Boaz is taking. He is steadily and carefully arranging things. And by the way, this is in complete contrast to chapter 3. Look at the contrast between these two chapters. In chapter 3, there was a lot of passivity at night. But now, in chapter 4, there's a lot of action going on in the morning. In chapter 3, it was a very private kind of a setting. This is a very public setting. In chapter 3, kind of things were a little tentative as people were just kind of easing their way and feeling their way into things. But here in chapter 4, it's very purposeful. It's very direct. In chapter 3, the attitude is, well, let's see what happens. In chapter 4 is, it's time to act. So at the end of chapter 3, verse 18, Naomi correctly mentions that Boaz is not going to rest until the matter is settled. So once Boaz sets the stage, Then starting in verse 3, he then explains the issues. And he first mentions, as we heard in the video, that with the death of all the men in the family, Naomi has some land that she wants to sell. One of her close relatives needs to buy the land. It's going to keep the land then in the more extended family, but that's also going to give Naomi the financial security that she needs. In verse 4, Boaz says, I thought I would tell you of it. Interesting, that whole phrase is literally just one Hebrew word that is expressing the concept, I want to uncover your ears. In other words, Boaz is, is basically saying to this other relative, let me acquaint you with some facts. And Boaz points out, this other gentleman is a closer relative to Naomi, 
So he has first right of refusal as a kinsman redeemer. Boaz is the next one in line. So notice what Boaz is doing. He's asking for a decision. Boaz is trying to settle the issue. He wants to know the other man's intentions so that he will know then what he should then do. Well, look at verse 4. The other man is willing to redeem the land on Naomi's behalf. But there's another further consideration. Boaz now mentions it. Verse 5, with the land purchase comes the necessity of taking Ruth as a wife to raise up a son to continue the family name. Ooh. In other words, stapled behind the title deed to the land was a marriage certificate. Well, that pretty much changes everything. Boaz has set the stage. He has explained the issues. And look at verse 6. Now he takes responsibility. For at the news that Ruth is part of the overall package here, the first kinsman redeemer, he begins to backpedal pretty quickly. Look at what verse 6 says to us. So this redeemer says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair, we'll come back to that word in just a moment, my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, Boaz, for I cannot redeem it. Okay, that word impair, that literally means to endanger. So the man, this first man, he foresees the possibility that if a son was born to he and Ruth, that would put at risk the passing on of his own estate to his own children. So that tells us a couple things. It tells us the man's married. It also tells us he doesn't have a son yet. So having a son with Ruth would put that boy over any future children that he might have with this other wife that he's already married to. So in his mind, the risk to his own family outweighs his caring for Naomi and Ruth. I cannot redeem. So we notice in verse 7, there's this unusual handing over of his sandal. It's a physical act. Yes, that's true, but there's more going on there. It signifies, Boaz, you have the right to purchase the land. And the ceremony of the sandal is unique because what it literally means is, Boaz, I'm giving you my sandal. I'm giving you the right to walk on the land and work the land. So everybody's been watching this first-in-line kinsman redeemer. Now, at this point, all the eyes turn to Boaz. What are you going to do? The ball is in his court. You're next in line. Well, look at verse 9. This is what Boaz declares. So he says to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malin. And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Again, don't miss. There's absolutely no hesitation by Boaz. In other words, he didn't set up this meeting in order just to probe 
probe and kind of investigate his options in order that at some other point or later point, he could just give consideration to what he might do. No, Boaz knew what he would do. He just didn't know what the other kinsman redeemer that was in front of him would do. So Boaz here in verse 9 and verse 10, he has declared himself to be all in. And then in verse 11 and verse 12, those in the audience, they pronounce over him a threefold blessing. Oh, they, 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 first of all, they ask that God would, give, would help Ruth be fruitful and conceive and bear a son. Secondly, that they ask God to make Boaz famous. And then third, they ask God to bless the family line. Next week, next Sunday, we're going to look at the amazing way that God answered those three prayers. So let's kind of hit the pause button for a moment. We've just worked our way through these first 12 verses of chapter 4. And as you kind of let the story wash over you, doesn't a smile kind of break out on your face? Why? Why do we have the reaction on the inside? Okay, all right, this is really good. What is it about this story that is so appealing that it, that it creates inside of us these, the sense of satisfaction? Well, we may have a hard time kind of putting our finger on it, but our instinctive reaction is due to the truth of what's just unfolded in these 12 verses. Boaz is out front. His dust cloud is obvious. And our joy in all of this story comes from seeing how an act of redemption powerfully changes anyone's story. Now, it's time for a little bit of review. Let's just kind of back up and take another running start of, of where we are. Up to this point, Naomi and Ruth, before we get into chapter 4, they're still recovering from the heavy blows that have just hammered them ever since they were in Moab. And even coming back, it's not much better. Life has still been fairly brutal to them, even though they're surviving. But that's all they're doing. They're just simply surviving. So their story through the first three chapters of the book of Ruth could simply be a tale about some needy people being given charity. Hey, Naomi, welcome back to Bethlehem. Sure, if Ruth needs to come, let her come glean in my fields, and uh, that will help you keep it together. But what Boaz does here in chapter 4 is to inject into this story the breathtaking experience of redemption. And Naomi and Ruth's story from this point now forward will never be the same because of what Boaz did. And what was true for them is true for us. Each one of us has the potential for our stories to be powerfully changed by the experience of divine redemption. Which means it's crucial to understand what Boaz did and what redemption is all about. So let's just take a few moments and let's unpack the concept of what a kinsman redeemer does and how redemption in general works to powerfully change a person's story. Now I think many of you know that when you hear the word redemption, a picture needs to come into your minds. The picture that should come into your mind is that there is a person who has become a slave. 
They literally are in bondage, and it actually can be literal bonds of, of, of handcuffs on them or in chains. But as a slave in that condition, there's absolutely nothing they can do. There's absolutely nothing that they have to offer that will change their status. And then another person, a third party, comes along and by an act of extravagant grace, pays the purchase price, which sets them free. That's the picture that ought to come into our minds when we see the word redemption. Now, the first 12 verses of Ruth 4 reveal that there are three very essential ingredients to redemption. Three ingredients that actually blend together to form the explosive life and story-changing power of what redemption can do to a person. These three ingredients are at work with Boaz in the way he dealt with Naomi and Ruth. But remember, all of the biblical stories are given to us to remind us that God is building this larger, bigger story. So what Boaz does is simply a precursor to what Jesus did and still does today to powerfully change our stories by the act of redemption. So let's look at each one of these three individually and then blend them together. First, did you notice that redemption changes a person's story because it ransoms, it pays a price we could never afford to pay? Let's start with Naomi and Ruth. These two women had nothing. <laughs> they had no resources at their disposal which could change their situation. And unless somebody else acted on their behalf, nothing was ever going to change really in their lives. And that's what Boaz did. A kinsman redeemer pays the necessary price. And that's why in Ruth 4, the first 12 verses, the constant emphasis is on who will buy, who is going to buy. Because redemption begins with a price being paid. And what Boaz did is exactly what Jesus did for us. It's not easy to admit, but every single one of us is in the same position as Naomi and Ruth. We don't have the resources to affect change. Oh, we look good on the outside. But the debt position that we're in on the inside is not so apparent. How many of us, if we were really honest, would have to admit that we're living a slave-like existence? That we're in bondage. Interesting that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 describes what he sees in himself with these words. He says, I am sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, 
This I keep on doing. Do you see what Paul describes for us? And doesn't he accurately describe the struggle we have on the inside for us? And that's why as our Redeemer, Christ pays the necessary price to free us from this kind of bondage. But don't miss the high price of redemption. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 describes it this way, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Or Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus himself says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And by the way, in chapter 4, did you notice that Boaz didn't staff all this out? (laughs) He came personally to the gate to pay the price. And so does our Heavenly Father. He showed up personally in His Son. He entered our world, something that we're going to start celebrating here in just a couple of weeks as we enter into the Advent season and celebrate Christmas and sing and look at the stories of Emmanuel, God, with us. And that's where the the price was paid. His life for my life. Because that's where redemption's got to begin. Redemption can powerfully change a person's story by the act of a ransom, a price being paid that I could never afford. But there's a second ingredient to redemption that we see here. Let's add that to the powerful mixture. Redemption also changes our story because it rescues. It solves a problem I could never fix. Okay, back to Naomi and Ruth. What was their problem? Well, both of them have lost their husbands. The family line was in danger of disappearing. They were now indigents with no hope of their situation changing, and they couldn't change it. They have lost everything that's important to them. Every single one of us has lost something important too, only we may not be quite sure what it is, where it went, and how to get it back. All we know is that what we've lost crops up in deep feelings of shame that we really don't want to face. It shows itself in a nagging sense of guilt that just will not go away. It's also the fearful recognition that we're out of control. It's that insatiable drivenness that I've got something I've got to prove, all because of stuff we failed to do or or that we've actually done. So in chapter 4, Boaz steps into the problem and says, I'm in a position to fix this. I can rescue And folks, that is not only what Jesus Christ said, that's what Jesus Christ did. 
for the most important rescue that he offers to the shame-ridden, the guilt-burdened, the helplessly out of control, and the absurdly driven individual is the gift of forgiveness. Colossians 1, starting in verse 13, puts it this way, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us over into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, Paul says it this way, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And Jesus talked about it Himself in Mark 19, I mean, Luke 19, when he said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. The act of redemption powerfully, powerfully changes our story because it solves the problem we can't fix. It offers full and complete forgiveness. No more haunting past, no more skeletons in the closet. Rather, a deep and powerful sense of rescue because my heart has finally found the forgiveness that it couldn't find and fix any other way. Those are the first two ingredients. Redemption can change our story because it ransoms paying a price we can't afford to pay. And secondly, because it rescues solving the problem I can't fix. There's a third one we need to add that really just starts to complete the, this important um, mixture. And that is redemption restores. It restores, bringing me a position I could never, ever achieve. So at the start of chapter 4, what was the position or status for Naomi and Ruth? What do they have? Well, they're poor. They're defenseless, they're alone, they're widowed. And what powerfully happens when Boaz steps in as a kinsman redeemer and acts on their behalf? What changes? Suddenly there's provision. Suddenly there's protection. Suddenly now there's a husband. They're in a family once again. Folks, life has been restored to these two women. And that's the same offer that Jesus Christ puts on the table for us. Only His idea of restoration is bringing us back into a family and giving us a quality of life that God had originally intended for us to enjoy before it was all damaged by sin. Galatians 4 talks about it this way. We were in slavery. But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Why? That we might receive adoption to sonship. You are His sons. Do you see the change in status? From slavery to sons. 1 John 3 puts it this way. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God, and so we are. And in being given that new position in a family, it then changes our experience of life. 
John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus came to give up his life for my life. The necessary price that allowed him to rescue me so that I can have something called eternal life. And that's not life with just a lowercase l. It is life with a capital L. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reminds us of this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Or Jesus himself in John 5. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. One of my all-time favorite movies is Les Miserables. And you know the story that the main character is a former convict by the name of Jean Valjean. And as the story begins, he has just been released from prison after 20 years. But he has nothing. The clothes on his back is it, but he has nothing. He has served his sentence. But the punishment continues as his past and the wounds from prison just continue to haunt him. He comes into a city, no place to stay, nothing to eat, and he's offered hospitality by a priest. Yet early the next morning, Valjean is caught trying to steal all of the priest's silver. So he's confronted by the priest, and Valjean hits him and knocks him down and knocks him out, and he flees. Only to be caught a few hours later by the police. They bring him back with all the stolen silver in the sack. And Valjean faces the priest who surprisingly kicks up a cloud of redemptive dust. And then we have the following conversation. The priest asks the question, why did you leave the candlesticks? And Valjean is dumbstruck. All he can say is, what? (laughs) The priest says, why did you leave the candlesticks when I gave you all the silver? At this point, the police are a little mystified and and ask, you mean he didn't steal them? The, The priest says, no, it was given. So the police unlock his handcuffs. The maid is sent inside to get the candlesticks. And as the priest then puts the candlesticks into the sack, he's asked by Valjean, why are you doing this? The priest says these powerful words. He says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With the silver I have bought your soul. I've ransomed you from all fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. That act of redemption powerfully changed Valjean's story. He was never the same if you've ever seen the movie or read the book. The act of redemption here in chapter 4 powerfully changed Naomi and Ruth's story. They were never the same. Jesus' act of redemption for us 
can powerfully change anybody's story here this morning. How? It will ransom, it will rescue, and it will restore. Let's pray. Before we pray, some of you, maybe you're sitting there and this has been an awkward morning because you are being reminded of some very deep things in your own heart and soul that you'd been, you try desperately to ignore, cover up, excuse, hide your need of redemption. But you're hearing this morning an invitation to something that your heart desperately wants, but you're scared to believe it's true. That the God of heaven might care just enough for you and your heart and what you're experiencing to come and by no deserving that you could bring to the table, you could experience redemption. If that's the faith risk that you want to take this morning, there's not, not any magical words about it, but it's simply talking to our Heavenly Father and asking Him to give you what He is offering, His redemption. And just say, Lord, would you come and ransom me by the death of Jesus to pay the price I could never pay? Lord, would you come rescue me, fixing what I can't fix? Lord, would you come restore to me a fullness of life that I've never even had a chance to begin to experience. And in praying that, he'll do it.